0: Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. One of the many things I love about Open House is our regular catch-ups in the world of new media and social media with our resident guru, Steve Krieger. There's always so much to catch up on as it all changes almost by the minute. So let's see what's happening. Steve, good evening. Good evening, Lee. Welcome back. I want to start with a dynamic, Steve, that's becoming quite an issue in the world of social media how real we're being on it and the pressure lots of people are feeling that from all their pictures and posts, everyone else seems to have the perfect life and I don't. Yeah,
1: that's right. So there's an interesting uh, article put out recently, which I think really captures a lot of the feeling that many of us have as we spend time on social media. It's an article by a lady called Shauna Nyquist, um, and she contends that uh, social media is making us more envious uh, of other people as we compare our lives with others. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I think the way that she captures it is is quite neat. I mean, she explains that how we often use social media is to tell partial truths. We're never seeing the full picture of someone's life. Uh, And she describes it as, you see the photo of the wonderful dinner party you don't see the photo of all the mess and the dishes to clean up afterwards but because we're only getting this partial picture it's having a very different impact on our hearts on how we feel and how and our perspective of life than if we were to see the full
0: picture so she's saying that unlike perhaps any other time in communications history lots of this is hitting our envy buttons
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, she contends. I think it's probably a good one for us all to think about. You know, when is it that you look at social media? When do you fire up Facebook on your computer or your phone to just kind of browse around and see what's happening? Usually, we look at social media when we're bored or when we're lonely and there's nothing else to happen. We're not doing anything else. We're not looking at social media in our peak moments when life is great, when we're busy, when we're engaged, when we're in interesting conversations. And she says that because we look at it in these down times, social media has the potential to intensify the boredom and the loneliness that we are feeling at that particular moment.
0: Mind you, I suppose it's understandable that we're not posting the dirty dishes in our kitchens or the darker sides of our lives. It's interesting that there's just a like option and not a dislike in the whole realm of Facebook, for instance.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, we, we are very careful because, you know, social media, we're often painting a picture of how we would like the world to perceive us. Unfortunately, well, perhaps fortunately, in, in the yes. non-digital world, we don't have that luxury. People often see us warts and all. I saw this, I was visiting a church, uh, North Point Church, in Atlanta late last year. And I love the way they described how they do church. And they said, our philosophy here is we run toward the mess. We don't avoid the mess all this kind of the messiness of life and of people and of relationships we get in amongst it and we love people despite the mess because of the mess rather than seeking to avoid it and i think you know social media can make us avoid these kinds of messy situations in our own life um, and in the lives of others whereas what real community calls us to engage in is messiness because our lives are messy and we're not perfect and we do dumb things and we're still being changed and maturing and we need to have opportunities outside of online relationships to get messy um, and to have relationships that are not just the peaks but also the troughs
0: and shauna nequist makes the point about community she looks at what creates it and what doesn't and her conclusion that social media actually doesn't create a community
1: that's right. I mean, she contends that community happens when we hear each other's voices and enter physically into each other's homes. Um, that it happens, you know, when we um, are engaging face to face and eye to eye with other human beings. Now, just being with another person doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be transparent and open. Obviously, anyone can pretend or can, can hide, but it certainly makes that much more likely i guess it's a reminder about our need to continue to pursue community in all its mess with individuals face to face in groups small and large There's always and continues to be a place for for social media for that sharing. But as we've discussed in the past, we need to make sure that we are real on this platform and we're not projecting a life that just isn't true of ourselves.
0: The interesting thing about her is that unlike other critics of social media, she's not urging us to dump our technology. But at the end of the day, she says it's about making a distinction between public and private
1: Yeah, that's right. So she says that the very best things in life can't be captured in status updates. We often struggle to think what is something that needs to be shared with the world and what is something that just needs to be shared with uh, a few people who are close to me. Mm. And so we've got to wrestle with what that balance uh, looks like. How much do we need to project to the world of everything that is good in our lives and how much do we need to project to the world of everything that we're struggling with. And I think, you know, because we're still getting used to social media, we're, str- we're struggling with this and we're looking for what that balance might look like.
0: Steve, elsewhere, another one of the dynamics on social media is the rise and rise of its use in all sorts of political and public pressure campaigns including one very recently for gay marriage take us through that
1: yeah that's right so i mean this this is a good example of how social media is being used There's a group called the human rights campaign uh, and they are advocating at the moment for gay marriage Uh, they developed a very small graphic that people could use in place of their photo on facebook or what's called an an avatar to show their support for this campaign Uh, it was a little pink on red equal sign. The, uh, the human rights campaign was encouraging people to use this uh, on their Facebook profile as the Supreme Court in the US currently debates uh, gay marriage and considers its future.
0: And there were people analysing where this campaign was happening and actually how it was happening as it was happening. Well,
1: that's right, so there was a little bit of research that that went around, which was interesting. I mean they said that as this campaign was rolled out, um there are about one hundred and twenty percent more or 2.7 million people uh, who changed their avatars, who changed this photo during this uh, campaign. And they broke it down and discovered that most of this activity was coming from people living in in college towns in the US, uh, and most of the supporters were around 30 years old. So that kind of gave a bit of a a demographic of the people who were in support of this campaign. And a really rough idea, you know, I've got to be clear that they can't, capture everyone who changed their photo in response to this campaign but they can see that there was a rise as more people decided to change their photo to show their support for this particular topic.
0: Steve again elsewhere here's one that I'm sure resonates for all of us with so much now to read especially on our screens. One man is proposing a new and more efficient system for reading so we can cope with it all somehow.
1: That's right. Um, I think we're bombarded with opportunities and for things to read. Not only do we have books to read, there are an infinite number of <laughs> blog posts and journal articles, that um, newspaper articles and books than we could ever possibly read. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel overwhelmed by the potential. Same
0: here. Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's strange, we've got access to so much information, Uh, the potential is phenomenal, it's exciting, and at the same time it's overwhelming because I know I'll never be able to read everything that I want to read. There's a frustration there, and and, uh, Robert, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his last name particularly well, but Robert um, Estratino uh, has put together... Um, a little bit of a philosophy for how he approaches reading in this age of infinite information. Uh, A couple of the points that he shares, he says when he kind of opens up uh, an article or or a book, rather, something that's a little bit longer, and if he's not hooked by page 30, he's got a little bit of a thing about the number three, if he's not hooked by page 30, he doesn't keep reading. Um, He's not going to waste his time kind of continuing on. Likewise, with books and and blogs and and articles, he says, if he's not hooked and interested early on, if the first impression hasn't grabbed him, he's not going to continue reading. He's going to move on to something else that does grab his attention, which I think you know, picks up on uh, I guess the spirit of this age of kind of the, the world that we live in now of first impressions matter. Um, you don't have time to kind of bring people in in the sixth chapter to try and convince mm-hmm. them that this is something worth reading. First impressions are what count. And he also uses this term, uh, respect the attic. Apparently, Sherlock Holmes talks about our brains being like empty attics, that we choose to fill with certain things. And his philosophy, uh, Robert's philosophy, is to be careful about what we fill the attic with and don't let it get filled with junk that we don't need. So he's very strategic in choosing the types of materials that he's going to read, the books that he'll consume, that are things that will benefit him.
0: I think he's on to something, but he also recommends with, say, a long read skipping to the conclusion <laughs> I just can't do that <laughs>
1: I remember talk, talking to my sister once, and she she said she always used to read the end of the book oh. to find out the ending and then work back from the beginning, which never made sense to me either. Totally. The, the reason Robert comes up with this idea is he says, if it's worthy of understanding how the author got to their conclusion, you should read the whole book. But if not, congratulations, you've saved yourself uh, a lot of wasted time.
0: Oh, I see. Um, Part of the whole joy of it is just spending that time and shutting yourself off from the rest of the world with it, I (laughs) suppose.
1: Absolutely. Perhaps, I mean, there's a difference here probably between fiction and non-fiction and the type of um, books that we're reading. Because if it's a story, I mean, it really doesn't make sense, as I explained to my sister, to read the end first.
0: Yeah. But give him his due. He says this. It all leaves him relaxed. Now, that's not a bad thing.
1: No, look, we could all do with a little bit more relaxation. He says, you know, life is too short for bad information. You know, there is a lot of rubbish out there that you could read. And so it is good to be a little bit more strategic in choosing what we consume. Otherwise, um, we'll waste a lot of time.
0: Steve, let's dip in the Christian community. There's a huge amount of activity in this digital world. I've got to say varying standards and worth. Yeah. A leadership guru called Albert Moller is raising a range of issues for Christian leaders in the digital age. Before we get to that, he's also got a useful update on the gobsmacking figures involved in the digital age.
1: He does. So, I mean, let's, let's uh, look at some of those figures for a moment. He explains the internet is 20 years old. It now links globally more than 2 billion people. The internet has now connected 87% uh, of the population. Wow. Uh, Just on WordPress alone, just one of the blogging platforms, there's 2.5 million posts per month. Uh, There's a phenomenal amount of activity going on. Facebook, 900 million users. Mm. You know, uh, Twitter grown just from... 2006 to be a incredible phenomenon and really the um the first news source many people in the world go to. So, in the start of his article, uh, Albert Moller, who's a great Christian leader and a guy you know I've I've been reading for for many years, has just picked up on the scale of the internet in this new world. The internet provides us with some incredible wonders and some incredible horrors and everything in between. And so he's trying to think through at this time, what does it look like to be a Christian leader online?
0: One of the insightful things he says is that we need to dispense with the kind of division between the real world and the digital world.
1: That's right. He describes that divide as a category error. He says, you know, we are right to prioritise face-to-face communication. I mean, that harks back to our our earlier Conversation about what it looks like to relate well to one another. But he says that the digital world is itself a real world. What happens uh, online is real. They're real images that are shared. They're real people interacting, real mm. conversations being had. So we need to be careful about kind of dismissing the internet and kind of these online technologies as not being real because they are.
0: He has one very confronting line. If you're not on the internet, You simply don't exist,
1: That's right. I mean, and he's particularly picking up here in that line with people who are kind of 30 years and younger, Mm. whose only experience of the world is with the internet. It is their primary source of information. They have no idea about Encyclopedia Britannica. They can't imagine life without a mobile phone. So he's kind of picked up on a really important point that leadership, Um, must recognize that an online presence is essential for connecting with people in the world that we live in now.
0: And he gives some advice on developing that internet presence. Run us through some of the points that he makes, Steve.
1: Yeah, look, a couple of interesting points. He says, you know, if you are a leader, you are responsible to see that your organization's online presence is useful, attractive, inviting, and well-designed. And look, this. It's so important, you know, I've talked to so many people about this, you know, your website is the first impression many people will have of you or of your organisation. And so it's so important to invest well in making that first impression count. And then following on from that, he explains the importance of making sure that your online presence is kept up to date. The content is fresh, it's interesting, it's relevant, worthy of people's attention. And interestingly, he says this, if your internet presence looks stale, visitors will assume that your organisation is stale as well. Mm. Uh, you know, in some of the research I've done on, on church websites, there'll be information about Christmas services two years ago on the homepage. Oh. It doesn't reflect well on the church if you aren't able to keep that, uh, that information current. Totally. I, I guess his big encouragement is for, for Christian leaders today to take advantage of blogs and social media and every platform available for communicating the gospel. Uh, And his encouragement is that leaders should be exercising stewardship uh, in learning how to use all these new types of media, recognising that we have opportunities today with the internet greater than any generation has had uh, before. The potential is huge but relies on us understanding the technology and then using it appropriately. And it's
0: got to be quality. I mean, I often apply this principle of work as if to the Lord no longer can our stuff especially online be ordinary or daggy or certainly outdated
1: that's Colossians 3 you know kind of talking about the way that we work you know we, we work as if God ultimately is our our boss uh, looking down on our on our work it's interesting I think we can develop a, a culture and it's different in, in kind of different subsets of our community where being daggy um, or being kind of old is worn as a, little, a bit of a badge of honor we don't think that that's really important we're on about caring for people.
0: And we're not polluted by the world.
1: Well that's right, you know we haven't been kind of compromised, we're not worldly, we're focused on kind of what matters. But what that argument and that line of thinking fails to consider is that actually having a good website is a means of caring for people. There are lots of people who wouldn't step forth into a church or consider your organisation any further because your website is such a stumbling block for them making any further contact with you. Uh, And so actually technology is a means uh, of loving people when used well. And I think that's a change in thinking that we have to see if we want to continue to engage with people whose only experience of the world relates so strongly to the internet.
0: I so value your insights and all the stuff that you come up with every few weeks. Steve Krager, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Open House. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.